Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. I'm about to make a somewhat controversial statement, but I say it with the utmost confidence in its validity. I was the favorite grandchild. I know this might be difficult for some of my siblings and cousins to accept, especially for my sister who, as a child, excelled at just about everything, but she just could not compete with the level of admiration I inspired. Granted, I was the youngest grandchild, so I imagine that factored into my status some, but in retrospect, I also think my grandparents and I had very compatible personalities. My grandparents' emphasis on family and forming strong connections, as well as their fierce loyalty, are qualities that I often strive to exhibit. But regardless of whatever the reasons might have been, I shared with my grandparents a very strong bond. I also really loved being at their house. There are so many memories of which I hold quite dear attached to that place. Like feeding oatmeal to the fish in the DIY fish pond my grandfather made out of concrete, or sneaking downstairs to explore the mystery of their unfinished basement. I can still vividly picture the bright red-orange carpet of their second floor, and all the beautiful clutter and chaos inside my grandfather's workshop. Their house, which was this modest 1940s brick bungalow, located in the Jefferson Park neighborhood of East Point, Georgia, also in a way represented the center of commonality for my family. It was this beautiful middle of a Venn diagram that my grandparents created in which the differing personality types within my family were able to connect with one another. I think this is especially true considering that when they left that house and then eventually left this world, those familial connections did not remain as strong as they once were without the presence of that essential space in the center. My grandfather was the first to pass, leaving in the spring of 2004, and then would be followed by my grandmother a few years later in the winter of 2008. Following her passing, I began having these recurring dreams in which I buy their old house. They had sold the house in 2000, so it had been almost a decade since my last visit. But in these dreams, everything looked exactly the same. The actions would often differ from dream to dream, but the constant would always be the presence of their home. This place that had meant so much to me. Like I said, I started getting these dreams in 2008 and they have sporadically appeared ever since, though not as often as they initially had. I'm no dream interpreter, so I won't bore you with my attempt at analysis, but I will say that these dreams usually occur during moments in my life in which I've needed to be reminded to not close myself off. Considering what that house represented, maybe these dreams are meant to be reminders to myself of the vital importance of creating and maintaining that central space. In her wonderful 2020 record, Songs for John Venn, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Lou Turner expresses a similar truth. It's a record that embodies the beauty that's found in commonality. 
I first became aware of Turner through my love of the album No Medium by Rosalie. As is often the case, when I fall for a particular record, I'll spend a lot of time exploring its family tree. This is how I was eventually led to the great North Carolina-based independent label, Spinster Sounds. And in exploring the label's roster, I was able to find my way to songs for John Venn. There was just something mysterious about the album's cover and title that sort of intrigued me. And also, I've always been a bit partial to females named Lou, which was the first name of my grandmother's sister, my beloved Aunt Daryl. I took this as a sign and decided to dive in. I put on Lou Turner's Songs for John Venn, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Um, I'm Lou Turner, and I made this record, Songs for John Venn, with my dear friends. Group engineered it and Ross Collier also engineered and played on it and my bandmates in the Styrofoam Winos, Trevor and Joey played on it as well and a slew of other friends from Nashville and I play mostly guitar and sing, acoustic and electric guitar and I also play the flute on several tracks and a little bass here and there some mandolin I think that's about it. Lauren Lou Turner would spend her childhood in Central Texas, and it is through her family that she would be exposed to music. I'm from the Hill Country area. Um, I grew up in Central Texas in a little town called Kerrville, which is home of the Kerrville Folk Festival. It's kind of its claim to fame. And it's not far from San Antonio. And then when I was about 11, we moved to Austin. And I got to benefit from, from that city for, for seven years or so before I went to college and moved to Nashville. Um, so I kind of got the best of Central Texas, in my opinion. I got to experience Austin and go to some shows as a kid and experience all the weird art going on and also kind of have a small town hill country experience when I was younger, which was cool. My dad was a pastor growing up, so I was at church all the time with or without a sermon going on or Sunday school. I was just there all the time and always playing around on the piano or the organ or whatever was lying around lots of singing in choirs and playing in the youth worship band very much had my musical identity kind of tied up in my faith and my family music was kind of how we related to each other you know as a as a family and i have a lot of really sweet memories of my grandfather 
playing the bass. He's an amazing um, electric bass player. And uh, my grandma used to play the ukulele and we would jam when I started to play the guitar. And we would play old hymns like Will the Circle Be Unbroken, which is on my record, kind of a sort of a version of it, a little bit of a poetry take on take on it. But um, we would play I'll Fly Away and Johnny Cash songs. And so that was kind of my my home base with music was church and then family. And slowly I kind of started to get turned on to things, middle school and high school, having a computer, having the Internet that weren't, you know, Christian or church related and kind of started to get interested in secular music and fell down that rabbit hole. And yeah, it's kind of been further exploring since then. Turner would begin writing songs at an early age, which would also coincide with her learning to play the guitar. I think I was about 10 when I got my first guitar and started taking some guitar lessons from a guy at our church who played bluegrass tunes and it's really sweet. I told him that I loved making up songs like from as long as I can remember, I loved to just make songs up and I wanted to be able to accompany myself. And he was cool with kind of just showing me how to play chords and letting me kind of get colors in my palette and taking them and doing what I wanted. And that was really special because I know that's not everybody's experience with music teachers, you know. When I first started writing songs, it was definitely just to kind of have fun and experiment, but I was super grounded in my religious upbringing, which was pretty fundamentalist Baptist Christian situation down there in Texas. And I was kind of writing worship songs sometimes, and it was very much an expression of something that I was mimicking that I saw in those around me and what I thought I was supposed to be using my voice for. And I think whenever I went to college and kind of started to find who I was as a person, I was really discouraged about writing songs for a while, and I didn't write them for a while. Turner would eventually leave Texas and relocate to Tennessee to attend college. It is while there that she would further develop her songwriting voice. I moved to Nashville to go to Belmont. It's actually a Christian school, which is interesting. And it's not really sure of its identity there, which I related to at the time. But it's like a liberal arts school and people come to study music and music business. And um, I wanted to study songwriting. I got into the songwriting program and realized very quickly that it was not for me. It was a super, super music row centric, um, which in Nashville, that's where, you know, all the pop country is written and uh, where a lot of really great stuff was written a long time ago. But it's pretty dark, dark down there these days uh, when it comes to just inventive writing. And it was not for me. So I ended up making my own major kind of doing social work and um, music business. And I was really discouraged about writing songs for a while and I didn't write them for a while. And then when I started to again, I think that voice was there and it was 
it was really confident and kind of a little pissed off, like I'm ready to come out um, after being sort of, you know, I don't, nobody stifled me, but, you know, just the way that we're influenced by our environments and wanting to please, you know, those around me and, and uh, kind of shaking that off. And the song Flickering Protagonist, that's where that title kind of comes from. And that, that spirit of kind of like flickering into who you're becoming and the lights sort of coming on being like, Oh, these are the things I care about. And like, nobody can see them in the way that I can, especially having gone through such a major kind of faith transition, like loss of faith. Um, Not even a loss, just kind of a, I mean, there's something to grieve, but things transferred over into something else. And, I also just got into a lot of stuff that I really loved and it turned my lights on and lyricists like David Berman and um, other folks in Nashville kind of being steeped in that community, um, finding friends that I could share songs with and be challenged by really like made me excited to have my own voice and to sound different. While attending Belmont, Turner would meet her partner Trevor Nacrant, as well as like-minded musicians Joe Kinkle and Ross Collier, eventually forming the band Styrofoam Winos with Nacrant and Kinkle. It is with the band, along with assistance from Collier, that Turner would record her first solo record, An Expat Returns, in the summer of 2017. We sort of formed to be each other's backing bands. Trevor, Joe, and I were all songwriters, and we really wanted to start playing shows around town. We wanted to play with each other, but we wanted to play our own songs. And so we did that and just rotated the guitar every song. And we just, it's kind of like a writer's round within a band. And so that was kind of what the Styrofoam Winos was at the beginning. And then through time, we decided we really wanted to write songs together and kind of really lean into the collaboration element of it and and still continue to do solo projects on the side. So we all have solo records that we work on and often with each other. We're usually appearing on each other's stuff here and there. Yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then expat was my first I wanted to record those songs and I really wanted to have them playing on it and I just thought it would be fun to include the band name and it was such a communal effort because we did it live to tape with no overdubs so it was a it was really a group effort in every way um 
and Ross recorded it, which was great. And a friend, Ashley Evans, helped him out. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, recording together, I'd say. In time, Turner would begin working on the songs that would make up her second solo record. So that would have been 2018 and 2019 that I was writing those songs for that record. And um, we began recording songs for John Venn in June of 2019. I think Solar Eclipse, the first track, um, that was the first song I wrote of the bunch. And it was inspired by working in a library. Um, I was thinking a lot about classification and categorization and um, coming from my background of categorizing myself as a Christian and kind of moving into this land of scary, not categorized living, (laughs) Um, for lack of a better word, I was really intrigued by just the whole idea behind how we classify things. And um, libraries are a space for everybody and they feel like sacred and um, they kind of became like my church. And I think a lot of the lyrics were born out of thinking about that and thinking about, yeah, classification and a sense of openness and um, everything belongs in its place and kind of wanting the library to be like my new worldview coming away from something a little more black and white and binary and um, the Christian experience that I had growing up. Another key development in the record's direction would come about through Turner's fascination with the late 19th century mathematician, John Venn. I am a nerd, and I um, I just always loved Venn diagrams um, in school when we had to make them in, like, a project or um, for anything. I just, that was a, a form of organization that I was really into, and I... Um, I think it came up in solar eclipse, um, thinking of two people in like a relationship as a Venn diagram and kind of negotiating what's in the middle and what is beyond the border. Thinking about that in terms of relationships, you know, with, with friends and with partner, but also with God and with the world and, It just kind of became this kind of spiritual symbol for me of there's always something in the middle and there's there's always going to be something beyond that. You just have to kind of respect um, where things fall. And uh, I think it was just a comforting symbol for me. And and I was just kind of like, why is it called? Who is Ben? Why is that capitalized? (laughs) And. I did some Googling and I found out about John Venn's life and it was weirdly like mine. You know, he was a priest before deciding to be a mathematician because he didn't agree with um, the positions that the Anglican church was taking on social issues. And that was a huge part of me sort of leaving 
my faction of church and um he wanted to do something more useful to the world and to me that was that was kind of what my art was and so I just really identified with him and got a little obsessed and was reading a lot about him for a long time. The majority of the record would be made at the home studio of engineer Kate Haldrup with some additional recording made by Turner and Collier. It was made in Nashville at my friend Kate's house who engineered most of the record. She had a home recording set up that was just incredible um, out of her bedroom and living room. And I don't know how she does it. It sounds so good. We didn't do this one to tape. We did expat totally to two-track quarter-inch tape. But this one, I don't know what kind of board she used. But she just had a few mics, and it was very simple. We used a closet as the vocal booth, and it was very intuitive the way that she knew how to use her space. She's just really good at what she does, and that's what she had available. And it was amazing. It was really magical. We wanted it to be as live as possible. Most of the songs are Trevor playing drums while I'm playing guitar and singing. And then we would overdub from there. And we would just kind of do it as quickly as we could. So maybe Trevor would play drums, I'd play guitar. Then we do an overdub where he was playing bass and I was playing mandolin. And then, or I would be playing bass and he'd play lap steel or something like that. So that there was kind of an element of collaboration, even in the overdubbing. But there were three tracks that we recorded as a three-piece band, Trev, Joe, and I. And those were Measuring Tape, Flickering Protagonist, and Hats on Their Heads. It was really important to me that we got the rhythm section, kind of the live energy of playing those together, because they they really sort of revolve around that. So it was important to get that down. And then we would do overdubs afterwards. I did all the flute overdubs from home with my little setup, because that just felt like the safest place to kind of improvise and experiment. It is following the recording sessions that Spinster Sounds would express an interest in releasing the album through their label. Spinster had put out their comp tape, which was just wonderful, Quilt of the Universe. And I had a radio show at the time focusing on music by women at our local nonprofit radio station here in Nashville called WXNA. And I gotten the tape to play on my show and just sort of communicated with Emily and Sally, who were running it at the time, and said, if you guys are ever in town, come by and we'll do an interview on air. And that never panned out. But when I finished my record, I remembered how much I loved the stuff they were doing. And they had released a couple of other records by that time. And I could think of no better fit for getting help putting it out into the world and I sent it along and they were super friendly and welcoming and it was tracked I think when I sent it to them everything had been tracked but we're still kind of in the mixing stages and um they were they were down to see it through which was great 
and in the end, they had made a record. for John then opens with the expansive and dreamy solar eclipse. Built around the foundation of an acoustic guitar, Turner's voice floats above a loose arrangement of ethereal sonic textures, which include flute, marimba, lap steel, and a Suzuki Omnichord. An electronic instrument introduced in the early 80s is a sort of electric auto harp. The created atmosphere is one of warmth and intimacy and is the perfect introduction to this record, illustrating the symbiotic relationship between Turner's distinct lyrical voice and her instincts as a musician, highlighted specifically in this track through the way in which her poignant words complement the beautiful interplay between her flute and Trevor Nacrant's lap steel. Our first date, sort of, it wasn't really a date. Our first time hanging out together, we took a lap steel lesson. And the lap steel he's playing on the song, I actually bought the lap steel we learned on that day. And that's what that one is. So it's special. And um, he definitely didn't need another lesson and surpassed me immediately. So he's the lap steel player of the family. But yeah, I love I love the way it sounds on this track. It's really important to me that, especially coming from a background of writing poems, which stand alone in the word department, that writing songs is truly about where language and music are meeting. And the sounds are super important to me. I love improvising music with friends. I'm not in any way a super skilled musician. I have so much love and respect for skilled musicians. And I think I'm getting better and I'm learning, but it's very much a place of play for me. We started with 
myself on the acoustic and singing and Trevor playing the omni chord. And I think they're so playful and, you know, made for kids and play is really important to me, like I said, as a musician and also as a writer. And I think it's a huge part of this record and kind of there weren't parts to be played. There were ideas of parts, but it sort of was improvised musically in a lot of ways. So having the Omnichord right out of the gate is a really good grounding kind of foundation, I think. And I do want to say, if you're interested in Omnichords and you have one, if you ever need a repairman, my friend Ross, that's an engineer, he has Nashville Omnichord Supply Co. And he has a website. And um, yeah, he's kind of like our country's guru on the Omnichord. <laughs> so <laughs> keep that in mind. Solar Eclipse, that was the first song I wrote of the bunch. And I didn't have my library job yet, but I was volunteering at our public library. And it was around the time of the solar eclipse which Nashville experienced in totality, which was really cool. My volunteer gig at the library was a Saturday in the kids' area, kind of overseeing this craft where we were making solar eclipses. And I started writing the lyrics on the back of my craft paper. Um, <laughs> I started playing the flute in sixth grade band in Kerrville, Texas. When we moved to Austin the next year, my school didn't have a band. So I had kind of spent one year falling in love with this instrument, really, really loving it. And then I had my flute still, but I didn't play it as much when I got to Austin. And I kind of focused more on writing songs and um, playing guitar. The flute sort of sat by the wayside for a long time and then really in 2015 2016 when I started making music with friends jamming with the winos the flute came out of its case again and it's definitely an instrument that has a specific connotation and it's kind of a funny instrument I think it was an anchorman or something <laughs> like yeah, people taking themselves too seriously. And I like to use it to do the opposite um, and really just like use it as a texture, like a wash of texture and a sense of an environment, almost like the Omnichord. I, I kind of figured out when I picked it up again after so many years and I was trying to figure out what to do again, I knew enough to know kind of where the fingerings were and how to make a sound on it, but I couldn't remember anything else. And I only learned for such a short amount of time that it was just enough to kind of get me feeling confident. And then so much I didn't know. So I started just messing around with like how to make a percussive sound on it and listening to free jazz records. And, and yeah, I just really wanted it to, to be more of a texture 
And when it did do single note lines to be a counter melody or like another voice and not kind of a sense of drama or theatrical, whatever. Are you the fire that's been in my belly? Since we cooked up that spirit in the kitchen. We fried up eggs and bacon jam and jelly. effortless shifts in tempo and expertly employed percussive elements. The track Two Tributaries is a rumination on friendship, musically translated with a uniquely southern sensibility. I wrote the song about a friend who I worked with at a cafe around the time of Trump's election and we sort of lost touch after working together. We weren't ever really super close friends, but we had a lot in common and sort of like a really special connection that we we loved talking to each other in the kitchen while we were cooking overpriced brunch for Nashville tourists and kind of frying eggs and talking about music and putting on music to show each other. And he's still making music and it's under the name Wayne Graham, a really talented songwriter and a good friend at that time. And we sort of lost touch. And this song was written a couple of years later um, when I was making the record. I think I had had a dream about him and I was just kind of thinking about him and thinking about how people linger with us and how our relationships to each other aren't linear in a way that we kind of think of that they are and that we can connect with people even when we're not around them yeah it's just kind of meditating on friendship and the way that it eludes time and space and I wanted the song structure to do that too so that's why it kind of falls out of time on the courses So yeah, the falling out of time, I really I really enjoyed kind of doing that with Trevor live. He was playing drums while I played guitar when we recorded it. And it was really fun to ride that that time and space wave together and fall in and out of time, do something loose and tight. And um, all of the percussion 
and uh, Jaw Harp was really fun to add later. And Ross did the Jaw Harp, and I, I just love that instrument. And um, I'm really happy that it made it on there. And the bell, I wanted to kind of tribute the cafe that inspired the song, um, kind of like a dinner bell or something like that. So it was fun to get those kind of clingy, clingy sounds. Avenue features a guitar drenched in reverb and an atmospheric organ that creates a layer of nostalgic haze and is befitting of the track's lyrical content. This one is about my papa, who is my dad's father. He died in 2017, around the time I was starting to write some of these songs, um, planting the seeds at least. And it's just about him and his house and my mama. And they lived on a street that he named after himself. <laughs> they were the first to build on their street in Baytown, Texas. and. He named it King Edward Avenue after himself, which I just <laughs> get a huge kick out of to this day. He was a huge character, very, very kind, generous person, um, but he had a big personality and he was a king in his little, his little house. Um, and he worked for NASA, didn't go to college. He cleaned rocket ships at NASA and so all of it's just in the song, really. My my memo's still alive, um, but they're, they had something special there, and they always had people coming and going, and um, they were always making casseroles for people at their church, and um, really humble folks. And we didn't agree on everything, but there was a lot to kind of find in the middle of the Venn diagram, and I think that's sort of why this one bubbled up when it did. But uh, my papa always called me Sarge for some reason. And we never really knew why. <laughs> and towards the end of his life, he forgot my name. He forgot Lauren, but he still remembered Sarge. And uh, that's why that line, whatever gets the job done there, Sarge is in there. And he was cousins with little Jimmy Dickens. So that's why little Jimmy shows up. Apparently, he would chase Papa around in their West Virginia holler with a knife <laughs> when they were little. So that's what that whole 
telling stories of little Jimmy Dickens chasing birds of paradise and the holler line is about and little Jimmy uh, just knowing that we share some kind of relation has always sort of haunted my songwriting a little bit I think Uh, obviously very different songwriter but something about his ability to to get at something funny and also smart and that that sort of two two pronged country thing that happens with the double entendres uh i don't know it's i think he's amazing and um that's why he shows up there i think um i feel a connection to little jimmy too because he left his home to go to Nashville to make music. And that's sort of what I did too. And my grandpa would always be like, be careful down there in Nashville. You know, little Jimmy, he fell into drinking on Broadway, (laughs) you know? And um, like, he was concerned about me, you know, living a similar life to little Jimmy, which is really funny, but there's something in that, that I really latch on to and kind of, I wonder about what all we have in common. The track Hats on Their Heads is a musical tug of war that seamlessly shifts between staying tight and on track and nearly going off the rails at any moment. By the way, this happens to be my favorite song on the record. This one, I think the seed was born in a moment of jealousy towards another person. Um, and sort of a, like a snap judgment that I made of that person. And then it sort of grew out of that, you know, the aboutness is sort of more general now. I was reflecting on how when we make judgments of people that we don't know, what kind of violence that is and just how we treat people that we don't know and how it's hard to know people anyway and it makes it a lot more difficult and of course you know we have judgment for a reason and it's okay you know but sort of reflecting on my own uh how it's kept me from connecting with people to kind of build a wall and it's usually out of insecurity but it's also, you know, kind of a fun, a fun song because I, 
I don't know. I think it's fun to uh, mimic what's going on in in terms of we're we're moving along, thinking that we have everything figured out, and it's kind of like a rollicking guitar part um, that's sort of very sure of itself and knows what thinks. And then there's these moments that fall out of time and get really chaotic, and some one note bendy noise going on and. I think I just wanted to imbue an everyday encounter and like a rollicking everyday sense of calm judgment, passing judgment with the violence that is actually happening when, when you judge somebody and um, decide that you know what they're about, you know, and that's kind of how the music is mirroring the lyrics there, what I was intending at least. And Ross's circuit bent omnicord is all over here, which is really fun. And um, his Theravox also, which is kind of the synth. It's got like a slide on it, but it's a synthesizer. So that's what all of the the electronic chaos is. And um, Joey, Trevor, and I tracked this one as a trio live to get the rhythm section really, really tight and loose in the places where it needed to be. So we could fall apart and get back on. And that's my favorite thing to do with those guys. We love doing that together. And um, it's really fun. I tried. Following hats on their heads is the flute adorned psychedelia of But the Bees. desk and I have a reading chair they're in the same room you know I think this song is just about moving between them about moving between the anxiety of creating and the calm of sitting back and looking out the window and remembering that you're really small and there's bees that are working way harder than you're ever 
going to be able to work because they know exactly what they're supposed to do with their biology. You know, I think it's just about work. It's about trying to, to make something and it being separate from, you know, the way I, I make a living also. There's a lot of anxiety there under capitalism and there's a lot to be said there. So I wanted it to feel like the song pivots musically between that sort of anxious, like I'm writing, I am here, I'm doing it. Or like, I'm trying to do it, but I'm not doing it. (laughs) And then moving into this warmth in the chorus of, but, you know, they are, the bees are out there and they're pollinating. It's just very autobiographical. That's just something that I experience all the time. I wanted Ross's Theravox to sound like a bee buzzing, and it does, which just, you know, faintly. And um, the flute can sound sort of anxious. It's very breathy and can have a panicky feeling, but it can also be really beautiful. So there's a lot of duality and contradiction, and I wanted to lean into that. rollicking number that, much like hats on their heads, highlights the dynamic interplay between Turner and her styrofoam winos bandmates. So that was another one that was tracked live with the winos in hopes of kind of getting that collaborative energy to set the song up. And Joey's playing the drums, Trevor's on bass, and that's how we would play it live. And we played it live for the first time I think the day after the Kavanaugh hearing and given sort of the the environment of the lyrics and what they're thinking about, I decided in that moment that it was important for me to record it. You know, a lot of the record is talking about classification and measuring and how we sort of identify ourselves or don't or, and this one is really just confrontation. It's, confronting someone that classifies and measures and reduces other people, um, sizing them up. And so I wanted it to feel confrontational. And Trevor has this Vietnamese zither called a dambao, which his friend gave him. I think he brought it back from a trip there and it folds in the middle. So he was able to put it in his backpack, which is pretty cool. We don't have a string for it, but we use a guitar string on it. We also don't know how to properly play it, which is just 
you know, I feel like it's, it's more honest to approach uh, instruments that don't come from my culture with just trying to play around like a little kid would. And like, I'm not a Dan Bao player, but we have a bow and Trevor used the bow on the Dan Bao. And I noticed it kind of could connote the sound of a measuring tape being pulled out, you know, it's kind of this, and it builds tension and I wanted it to feel eerie. And we have Ross's circuit bent Omnicord again, stealing the show. And it kind of sounds to me on this one, like a mower dying. Like I have an electric mower and when it dies, it's kind of the sound. And it's sort of ominous, but also otherworldly. And I don't know. I wanted it to feel ferocious. And um, and they all brought those things into the bunch. And I'm really grateful. And then Dan Melchior is a great artist um, based out of North Carolina these days, but from England. And he added a second electric guitar part that comes in on the chorus and on the outro. And it's just kind of like a little touch of sort of a psychedelic fire going on. track Flickering Protagonist, Turner lyrically combines the secular with the non against the backdrop of a hypnotic loop of guitar chords. With touches of astral jazz like flute and clarinet weaving in and out of focus, the track then smoothly dissolves into a transcendent synth-assisted groove. realizing the more we talk about these songs that there's often in almost all the songs a tempo shift 
or a big switch and that's sort of like the Venn diagram is appearing again <laughs> and I did not intend to do that it just sort of happened and is what I was doing I guess at that time um flickering protagonist I wanted to have this sort of kraut rock feel a little bit um I love Can and Faust and Kraftwerk and I love the way Flute appears on those records in a rock context. That's a huge example of recordings that I can draw upon for how the flute can sound and be used as a texture. And so that was really fun to play with and my buddy Dave Meyer plays the clarinet and he was down to sort of just improvise apart and get weird and I love his parts on this and my friend Joe I mentioned he plays drums and also MS-20 modular synth on this one and um yeah lyrically it's the most personal to me in a way it reclaims a lot of the biblical references that I grew up with I kind of wanted to reclaim those biblical references and languages by juxtaposing them with the everyday present realities of my my life like grocery shopping or getting your car battery replaced and using that kind of like high and mighty language mixing it into more of a low down everyday experience and yeah, I wanted it to feel wild and I wanted it to feel flickering. Um, and like somebody kind of trying to struggle into themselves. And the flute fluttering kind of feels like a flicker. And I wanted the song to feel like a struggle and and a freedom at the same time. Peggy paints Nashville's buildings before they get torn down. The one of JJ's marketing cafe is literally effervescent. It has bits of glass she found in the street and stuck in the canvas, as well as a tiny bit of a mirror. You can find your eye in the reflection there. You'll know it's your eye when you blink, she says. I find my nose ring first, shining there on Broadway where the pedal taverns probably are now. I show her my tattoo of the JJ sign on my thigh. She says, that's an acute angle on an acute thigh. We eat our fish with melted butter and discover that we both love to sing hymns. Later, when we sing Will the Circle Be Unbroken, she thinks of her mother, who passed on a cold and cloudy day, like it says in the first verse. When I sing that song, I think of Willie Nelson, Benny and June, and Venn diagrams, I tell Peggy. She reaches over the table and picks up a beautiful wooden box with three intersecting circles. On the track, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Turner, who is also a published poet, reads one of her poems while being accompanied by a shimmering mixture of guitars and piano. I ask her if she knows the verse in Will the Circle Be Unbroken that talks about singing secular songs after being raised to sing hymns. I tried to paraphrase it, but I'll include it here now. You remember 
Broken was recorded at a little studio around the corner from my house here in South Nashville. Ross was working there at the time and there was an off day. Nobody had booked time and we got in there and did that live, which was really fun. The poem was written about a night I had with my dear friend Peggy Snow, who plays in a band here in Nashville called the Cherry Blossoms. They've been a band for a really long time, and they've collaborated with Josephine Foster. They put out a record together on Feeding Tube last year. Peggy and I played a set together for a friend's festival, Ross, um, who engineered this track. He does a festival every year called That Ross Collier Sound Fest, and it's just all about friends and community, and there's usually, like, really weird stuff going on, like a pinata full of spaghetti. And it's just, <laughs> it's a little chaotic. And we played this set together. And the night before we practiced just a little bit, kind of hung out. And the poem is just about our night together. And I didn't want to forget it. And so I wrote it down just as it happened and decided that it was something I wanted to share with other people. And I just had been thinking a lot about the verse and will the circle be unbroken that I talk about in the poem growing up singing hymns and then singing songs of the world, I think is how they put it in the song, kind of turning to secular music. And that's a lot of what's happening in the record. And so when I had the poem, I realized that I felt like it was zooming out from the reality that the album is sort of plugged into and plotting through and I thought it would be nice to have I'd kind of already wanted to have some sort of instrumental or spoken moment where the listener can kind of pivot for a moment I really love records that do that one track that comes to mind is the clientele they have a song called losing herringay and it's a beautiful spoken word track. Um, the band High Risk was a all-female free jazz collective in the 70s who improvised the poetry. I was listening to that a lot at the time. So I kind of had this idea of having a, a break and doing something different, zooming out or in, depending on, you know, your bearings. But I thought about asking the winos if we could do it live and if I could read the poem while they played along. And so they sat at the piano, guitar, and resonator and quoted Will the Circle Be Unbroken sort of, you know, in their own way, in different ambient kind of ways. Um, and then we decided to break into the song for a moment and then sort of go back into the improv space again and um 
Yeah, I'm so glad that we did it. It was the last track that we recorded and it was recorded with somebody else, you know, with Ross instead of Kate, sort of a last minute thought. And I'm really glad that we chased it down because I think it, yeah, it adds some perspective to the record. And I'm really proud of the recording and of my friends. <laughs> they think they sound so beautiful. And it was nice to not play anything on this one and just sort of trust in our collaboration. We get bossa nova tinged folk rock and the track Testify. I think another kind of musical influence of me, especially my partner Trevor is bossa nova and brazilian folk music and there's a lot of woodwinds going on and a lot of those arrangements especially tropicalia and a lot of the warmth of those arrangements i take a lot of inspiration from and in 70s folk music you know from from here and from britain to um, a lot of woodwinds going on, but yeah, it means a lot that it doesn't feel like a gimmick because especially the clarinet has that connotation, I think. But yeah, this song was written after attending a White Lives Matter counter protest I went to in Pulaski, Tennessee. And that's, of course, where the first chapter of the KKK was founded. So driving there and driving back and and not being a very long drive, but feeling like, you know, just a gulf, you know. I don't have any huge uh, answers. <laughs> I just have, I have a lot of questions around the gulfs between us and, you know, hence all the Venn diagrams. Um, but that White Lives Matter protest was really horrific to witness. And um, I love the South. I love being from where I'm from, and I love the people here. And I think a lot of the times we get classified and reduced very easily. And there's a lot of really harmful stereotypes around the South that, 
frustrate me and that I think are often rooted in classism, um, frankly. There's a lot of lack of funding and resources in the South. And this song is just meditating on the complexities of all of that. And yeah, the nods to Liva Cotton and Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, just fellow Southern women who have testified to the complexities of where we are in, in space. And there's such a power and beauty of in both of their work. And I just kind of wanted to meditate on joining in them, aspiring to to offer something. And I wanted the song, you know, it's about a lot of intense stuff. And I wanted it to feel gentle. I wanted, you know, a gentle place for it to breathe in. And Dave's clarinet is really rollicking and kind of puts me at ease. Um in the middle of some some tough stuff to talk about. So that's that one. The album's penultimate track, Alarmist Apology, is a sparsely arranged number that grew out of a poem that would eventually be published in Turner's 2021 chapbook, Shape Note Singing. I'm sorry I pushed you away and did not exhale. It was incredible. Like a hot pan without oil I was sizzling without a subject And burning us both Setting off a fire alarm again So I wanted it to feel simultaneously vulnerable and ominous Because that's sort of how an apology can feel And... I suffer from a lot of panic attacks in my life, and this is sort of written in, I guess, about sort of being in the wake of that, and like how you can spin out on other people when you're experiencing anxiety um, that doesn't have anything to do with them, and kind of how we rub up against each other with our own shit. <laughs> and. So I wanted it to feel vulnerable and that just, you know, starkness of the guitar part and the melody, but I also wanted a sense of the ominous um, and the alarm in the song. I kind of wanted there to be a sense of, of that electronically. And so my friend Joey, he had his MS-20, his modular synth, and he just... I didn't even really give him a lot of direction. He just sort of sat into it a couple of takes and 
he got it. And we listened a little bit to a broadcast song called Echo's Answer that I love that has sort of a similar sound. And I really love how broadcasts sort of, in that song specifically, use acoustic instruments in starkness alongside electronics, which is not really associated with kind of a stark sound to kind of get at something otherworldly, but also raw, you know? And um, I think somebody else who does that really well, who Joe and I both love, is Juana Molina, um, the Argentinian songwriter. And yeah, I, I feel like it was just kind of an intuition, the recording of it. He really picked up on what the song is doing. And this is another one that's a, it began as a poem and it's published as a poem in a chapbook I have and it's lineated that way. And I just kind of thought about singing it one day and had that little, that guitar thing in my hands and it sort of just came into itself. The album ends with the track, Widening Venn Diagram, a solidly constructed piece of songcraft that accomplishes the difficult task of expressing something sweet without it being excessively saccharine. Through her remarkable voice as a lyricist, Turner once again utilizes the concept of a Venn Diagram to communicate her final truths. The impact of her words are further enhanced through the song's thoughtful arrangement rendered beautifully by Turner and her collaborators, bringing to the recording the type of love and care that a song of this caliber deserves. 
So I guess, you know, at its heart, it is a love song. And I wrote it after celebrating an anniversary in November of 2018. And it was the day that the Dylan bootlegs for Blood on the Tracks came out, which were called More Blood, More Tracks. And that's kind of that lyric in that first verse. And Blood on the Tracks is my favorite Dylan album. And hearing all those studio outtakes in alternate versions of something that was so familiar was just really surreal. And that record was really important to me and my partner kind of when we met. And um, something about hearing reimagined versions of something that was so dear to us and hearing the way that it, it had so many alternate paths that it didn't take got me thinking about long-term relationships and how we wear into grooves and routines but there's always alternate versions you know the venn diagram of being with somebody else and continuing to be surprised by what can come out of uh something familiar and i think a lot of times you know, monogamy isn't super cool right now. <laughs> and uh, I think kind of falling in love and seeing that I was taking a traditional, you know, a traditional path towards like being in a straight cis relationship, being engaged. Um, just kind of thinking about like how that can seem like a prison. And that's where some of the, the lyrics are coming from thinking about well if it is then like I'll swallow the key like this is my chosen this is where I'm gonna be um it feels right to me and sometimes what confines us is actually really liberating and again you know obsessed with juxtaposition and <laughs> obsessed with Venn diagrams and obsessed with uh contradictions and I think a lot of that comes from Christianity. There's a lot of contradictions. Um, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth and all that stuff. Jesus was all about that. Um, so there's a lot of contradictions here. And yeah, a love song with the word spit in it. Because let's be real. Like when you're in love with someone, that's what's going on. <laughs> you're all up in each other's shit. There's there's a lot of uh, ugliness. and. Um, that's what it's like to really know someone. And so I wanted it to be a love song that wasn't oversweetened. And um, my friend Siona sang harmonies. And she's an incredible songwriter and very dear friend. And it was really, really sweet to get to sing together. And at the end, the refrain of we're in the middle of some winding Venn diagram. That's her and me and Trevor together. And it was really sweet to do that. And it's a sweet way to end the song and sort of loop back into a communal space. And Sienna's partner, Austin Hoke, plays the cello. And I really love, love the way he plays. He kind of does some psychedelic atmospheric stuff, but also holds down the bass all at once, which is really amazing. And 
Ellen Angelico is an incredible guitarist, plays with a lot of country bands in Nashville, and she plays the pedal steel here and told me that it was kind of her first time recording the pedal steel, which I just, I can't believe. She knew exactly what I wanted immediately and how I wanted it to kind of be a little dissonant sometimes and also fall into some more uh, classic riffs every now and then. And I'm just so grateful to have kind of an emblem of the Venn diagram and the personnel on this song. For the album art, Turner uses a drawing by her measuring tape collaborator, Dan Melchior. So Dan Melchior, who played guitar on measuring tape, he is an amazing artist and musician. And I ordered a record from him in 2018 sometime, I think. And he just included this art in the package. And there was no explanation or note or anything. It just was in there. And I loved it. And I put it on my wall. And when I was thinking about the Venn diagram and the artwork, sort of just looked at my wall one day. I was like, oh, there it is. It's been here. And it's cool because he was on the record and a part of it. But yeah, something about the two faces sitting in kind of a pod together and they have these angel wings. It felt like a Venn diagram, but not. And also has kind of an ethereal quality. The pencil, it's barely there, really. And it's on this kind of like paper bag, brown paper bag, paper. And I loved how it was kind of simultaneously earthly and celestial or something. I just loved it. And I texted him and asked him if I could use it. He didn't even remember sending it to me. He was like, what are you talking about? And I sent him a picture and he was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I'm really grateful that he drew that. I don't know what inspired it. It's kind of a mystery. Sally Ann Morgan, she owns Spinster with Emily and Michelle. And she is an amazing visual artist and printmaker. She did the embroidery and designed a lot of the layout on the tape, too. Spinster Sounds releases Songs for John Venn on April 3, 2020. Due to the album's release date coinciding with the earliest days of the COVID-19 lockdowns, the initial plans for promoting the record had to be adjusted. The record was going to come out, and we had planned a short tour. I was working full-time, but kind of configured a way to do a little touring. I was really excited about it. And um, had the winos that were going to join me. And and then this whole COVID-19 thing started popping up. And we couldn't do it. And we didn't have our album release show. And I'm really grateful that, I don't know, that we sort of learned that we needed to not be gathering um, before it came out. But um, I had a very quiet release day at home, which was actually kind of sweet. And I'm sort of a solitary 
person. I love my community, but I have some social anxiety and can have performance anxiety and stuff like that. And so it was sort of nice and a little bit of a relief just to sort of celebrate by going on a walk. And I sent out a postcard to all of my closest friends with a Venn diagram that I watercolored onto the postcard. And it was an invitation to listen at the same time so we could all play the record at the same time to celebrate. And they were so kind to join me. I think I included a poem by Charles Wright, one of my favorite poets, called Half Moon on that invitation. And yeah, it was a it was a quiet day, but I was just grateful to to be alive and, you know, <laughs> to have a community to celebrate with. And then yeah, many months passed and I was grateful that it was still kind of getting heard and people were I think people were more willing to listen to new stuff kind of in that time because people were bored and sitting around and I'm grateful that anybody would spend time with the record and my friend Mike at Centripetal Force he does a lot of really cool releases a lot of experimental and improv and um ambient psychedelic music he offered to help me out with putting it out on vinyl the great american writer john updike once described his writing as a means of giving the mundane its beautiful due on songs for john venn lou turner does just this through her unique perspective as a songwriter turner explores the commonalities that can be found between the spiritual and the everyday. And it is with the help of her community, the willing participants in the middle of the Venn diagram she has created, that she is able to effectively convey this truth. I feel a lot of gratitude when I think about this record and all the people that were a part of it. It really is like a an actual Venn diagram of me and my community and, you know, the person that I am and the person that I am when I write and I feel like I hear I hear myself bubbling up and kind of coming into being and I'm really grateful to have made all this with such dear people that I really respect as people and as musicians. It feels like a spiritual experience. It really music and writing are very much spiritual for me and yeah, I just feel a sense of, of gratitude and And I feel grateful that people I don't know have stumbled upon it. And it makes me excited to make more, to make more of them. It's exciting to to sort of reflect on the ways I've grown even since making it and kind of what's going to come up next. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Lou Turner for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy songs for John Venn and more from Turner at louturner.bandcamp.com, various streaming platforms, or at spinstersounds.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or 
at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.